or in. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. We're good people, we say to ourselves. And we generally do say such a thing, but how about for $10 million? Would that change anything? Does cold cash change our morals? Or does it reveal our morals? Well, it's a pivotal question in a money-oriented society. And so Patterson and Kim, two advertising executives for the J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency, in their research for their book, The Day America Told the Truth, asked that very question. What are you willing to do for $10 million? Or how about $2 million? Would it make a difference? Well, sure enough. Money talked to people all across the country, they said. For $10 million, one in four, that is 40% or 25%, would abandon all of their friends or abandon their church for $10 million. And about as many would turn to prostitution for a week. Some would go much further as far as murder, changing their race, or a sex change operation For $10 million, they said. In fact, 7% of Americans said they would murder someone for money. That's about one in every 14 people. Now, whether they could actually pull the trigger, that's another question, but 36 million Americans would have been willing to consider the offer, at least. So, Patterson and Kim did a follow-up telephone survey to their $10 million question. And the results were pretty much the same. At $5 million, at $4 million, and at $3 million. But then, when they got to $2 million, things started to fall off in what people were willing to do. They said, our price in America seems to be about $2 million or thereabouts. Now, here are some of the questions. Are you ready for this? We Are you honestly willing to do for $10 million? What are you honestly willing to do for $10 million? Would you abandon your entire family? 25% said yes. Would you abandon your church? 25% said yes. Would you become a prostitute for a week or more? 23% said yes. Would you give up your American citizenship? 16% said yes. Would you leave your spouse? 16% said yes. Would you withhold testimony and let a murderer go free? 10% said yes. Would you kill a stranger? 7% said yes. Would you change your race? 6% said yes. Would you have a sex change operation? 4% said yes. And would you put your children up for adoption? 3% said yes. What would you be willing to do for money? You see, the problem wasn't the money. The problem was their heart. The problem wasn't their money. The problem was their heart. So they revealed how easily it would be 
to seduce them to compromise at the very least, to absolute corruption and even the killing of someone else at the worst. Amazing, isn't it? On the other hand, as Patterson and Kim noted in their book, The Day America Told the Truth, that came out in 1990, they noted that, well, most of us would just say we're, we're pretty good people. And those people that they interviewed would say the same thing. But were they? When you hear a study like that, it makes you wonder how we have any kind of stability in our country, doesn't it? It makes you wonder how in the world we could ever have politics we could trust or banks we could trust or or law courts, pastors. It's a wonder we can trust anybody, isn't it? Maybe that reveals why we're in such a mess we're in. Because the problem is not the money. The problem isn't what is offered. The problem is our willingness to be seduced by the offer. So what's compromise, by the way? Well, somebody would say, well, compromise is the willingness to work together to try to get along to accomplish something. Well, that's a righteous kind of compromise if you're not compromising on principle. But the kind of compromise that we normally talk about with regard to these kinds of issues where you're seduced to actually do something that is contrary to what you say you believe or want others to think you believe or who you are is another problem. And that kind of compromise occurs when desire meets opportunity. When inner desire meets opportunity. When flawed character meets opportunity. So today we're going to take a look at this because in reality, friends, it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking we can't be deceived. To deceive ourselves into thinking that we can't be uh, seduced, that I can't be seduced, because after all, don't you know who I am? The problem is, God does know who you are. God does know who I am, and he knows who I am in my heart. And therein lies the problem. David, the psalmist, talked about that. He said, you you, you see everything. You know my innermost being. You know my innermost heart. Wow. So if God knows your innermost heart and mind, what does he know? What are you capable of? Are you capable of betraying the Lord? Are you capable of accepting the mark of the beast, for instance? Just as a a thought. You see, the problem is we're human beings, aren't we? Every one of us, we put our pants on one, one leg at a time, all of us. We're all tempted. We're all tested. 
And we're going to find today on Viewpoint how even a prophet could be tested within an inch of his life, so to speak, and over and over again succumb to seduction, causing him to become one of the most despised persons in all of Israel's history. Are you ready for this? Stay tuned, because you're listening to Viewpoint. Viewpoint does determine destiny, friends, and you've heard it said that the road to compromise begins, the road to hell begins on Compromise Corner. Well, we say we have good intentions, but how do those intentions actually get played out? Are we ready for the second coming of Christ? We'll be back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Would you, are you able to be seduced into a kind, a level of deception that would deprive you of your eternal destiny? If not, why would Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, even the Apostle James, why would they all warn against this kind of deception and seduction, since all of their warnings were to professing believers. Hmm. Something to think about, isn't it? Now, regarding this matter of compromise, we all have heard the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We've heard that. And we might speak it in a jesting flair. But the unfortunate thing is, it's an aphorism that expresses a profound truth that in reality we know is true. Few intentionally would embark with gusto on the road to hell. I'm sure you would not. So why do then do so many people find themselves on that road accelerating to full speed on the highway to eternal destruction? Well, the answer is simple. Good intentions. Good intentions alone without an absolute anchor to unmovable and unshakable truth that doesn't drift will inevitably lead down the on-ramp to a massive multi-lane expressway or freeway, whatever you want to call it, interstate, propelling all travelers to unsuspecting an unsuspecting abyss. And compromise becomes the engine that propels good intentions toward eternal deception. So in, a, in reality, the road to hell begins at Compromise Corner, doesn't it? It's at the intersection of all major roads in our lives. And the decisions we make, 
the turns we negotiate a compromise corner inevitably lead toward that multi-lane expressway to destruction, even while still believing and convincing ourselves we're headed in God's general direction. And unfortunately, all compromise as it relates to God's truth is compromise. And all compromise on issues of truth is deceptive, profoundly seductive, and the great danger is that very few travelers realize the seriousness of that seduction because, here's the reason, because they measure themselves and the correctness of their own decisions by the overwhelming majority who seem headed with certainty and clarity toward that big, wide highway to hell. Now, they they reason that if popular pastors, parachurch leaders, and the seeming majority around them, their friends, their relatives, and so on, seem comfortable with that direction, well, it must be okay. Even though deep in their heart, they have this haunting suspicion that something is wrong. I mean, how, how could it be wrong if it feels so right? But in the end, that compromise bites like a cobra and is deadly. Just this week, I had a shocking situation that occurred. I was taking, simply taking out the trash. And as I approached the trash bin where I was going to unload this bag of trash, And I was getting ready to toss it, and all of a sudden, right in front of me, was a slithering snake. Right there, right in front of me. I couldn't believe it. A snake right there in front of me. And I backed up, threw that trash bag down on top of the snake, and took off. I don't like snakes. The problem is that compromise and seduction comes like a serpent. It slithers into our lives. Now, my wife was at that very location just uh, maybe a half an hour before. There was no snake. At least she didn't see the snake. But he suddenly appeared when I was there. Have you ever had a situation where you were presented with a choice or a compromise or something that just kind of happened, seemed to just happen right in front of you, and you had to make a choice. In other words, that choice, that seduction, slithered in right in front of you, and there it was. You had to make a choice. Mm Mm-hmm. That's how Satan works. He does. That's how he worked with Eve, right there in the garden. He slithered in. Oh, and he was so convincing, so convincing. And he worked on her fleshly mind and heart and will and emotions. He worked on her eye gate. And when she saw, when she saw what looked like it was good to eat, 
she thought, well, how could it be wrong when it seems so right? So she convinced her husband, hey, this looks pretty good. And by the way, this fellow over here, this serpent says uh, uh, that what God said about surely dying if we eat this fruit, uh, that's not true. What he really meant was that if you if you eat of it, you're going to be like me, and I don't want you to be like me, like God, so don't eat of the fruit. Hmm. And she bought the rationalization. How easy is it for us to rationalize seduction and compromise? It's amazing, isn't it? Now you know why every single one of us, and it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor, a parachurch leader, whether you're a, a, a president of a corporation or of the country, a prime minister, a priest, a pope, it doesn't really matter who you are because every single one of us can be seduced. In fact, one day, as I was reading the scriptures, it came to me that this was one of the preeminent problems that we're facing here on the near edge of the second coming. Because the enemy of your soul and mine is out to take down anyone and everyone he can. Now remember, Jesus said that the unbelievers are condemned already. So Satan does not have to go after them in particular because he already has them. The ones he wants to go after are the ones who profess to be followers of Christ, the ones who profess to be followers of the one true God, the ones who profess to be genuine believers. Those are the ones he wants to take down. So how does he do it? Seduction, deception, and seduction. He uses the very method that is so common that we all understand intrinsically because of how we're made that works in the area of sex. And friends, whether you have noted it or not, the entire Bible from Genesis chapter 2 on through Revelation chapter 22 is framed around the sexual relationship, primarily marriage, and when we err from our faithfulness, from fidelity to Christ, by fornicating and adulterizing with the spirit of the world through compromise, yielding to the seduction of the serpent, we are putting ourselves in a position of being disqualified for our desired eternal destiny. Now, you may not like to hear that, but that's what the Bible says. And that's why the Apostle Paul, in writing about marriage, talking about the relationship between Christ and his church and so on, he says that the Christ is not coming back for a bride with spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Because he can't have that in his kingdom. He's not going to have adultery in his kingdom. He's not going to have fornication in his kingdom. 
He's not going to have physical fornication and adultery. He's not going to have spiritual fornication and adultery. He's not going to welcome compromisers into his kingdom. It's not going to happen. So, the writer to the Hebrews says, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. That includes women. No person will see the Lord. That's why Jesus said, be ye holy. As I am holy, you be holy. You see, it's a matter of being. I know this isn't the kind of thing that we normally hear in our churches these days. Because it's deemed to be mm, too tough or offensive or not calculated to draw more numbers into the congregation or not calculated to put more dollars into the offering plate. But this is the message of the gospel. This is the foundation. God knows us. He knows that we are, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. All right, we're made in the image of God, but we're also completely invested infected by the spirit of this world and of Satan himself. So Jesus' brother made a very interesting statement. He said that the love of the world or the spirit of the world is enmity against God. It's at war with God. He calls it adultery and fornication. That's Jesus' brother, James. So let's take a deeper look. Some would call it a deeper dive. I don't like to use this common lingo that uh, people all of a sudden buy into. It becomes sort of like just a, uh, a cultural tick, shall we say, to always use phrases that everybody else is using. Let's just speak the truth. Let's just speak it simply, without adulteration. We'll just speak the truth without adulteration. All right. I want to introduce you to Mr. B. Mr. B, his name was Balaam. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. You can read about him in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, through chapter 24. It's fascinating. It's one of the more serious accounts in the Bible that very few really pay attention to. And there's a reason why we don't pay attention to it is because too often we could be prone to see ourselves in the life of Balaam. And we don't really want to see ourselves in the life of someone who becomes the image of dishonor in all of Israel's history. But here's a fellow, a prophet, known prophet called Balaam. And the king of Mid, uh, Moab saw that Israel had had done to the Amorites as they came out of Egypt, 
And he was afraid for the Moabites. He was extremely afraid. So he decided he was going to preempt a battle, and he was going to go to the prophet and get the prophet to protect him and the Moabites from Israel. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, and called him and said, Come, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. And it might be that I will prevail over them and smite them. And the elders of Moab came to Balaam and spoke to him with those words from their king. We're going to find out how Balaam responded now. Because Balaam's response is very similar to ours. Or at least might be. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at saveus.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Have you ever considered that prayer itself could be seductive or could be used seductively or could be used deceptively? A.W. Tozer, the famous preacher and author, said, prayer is no substitute for obedience. It's true. But do we try to substitute prayer for obedience? and then rationalize in our minds and hearts how spiritual we are. That's what happened to this prophet. His name was Balaam. So Balak, the king of the Moabites, sent his messengers to Balaam to curse Israel and bless Moab. So Balaam said in response, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak to me. Now, that sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't it? In other words, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to talk to the Lord about this and see what he says. So God came to Balaam and said, what men are these? And Balaam talked to the Lord about it. He said, what they were trying to do, and God said to Balaam, You're not going to go with them. You're not going to curse the people, for they are blessed. Now, Balaam already knew that. He was a prophet, and he already knew that. So why, then, when the representatives, ambassadors for the king of Moab came to him, did he say, I have to go talk to the Lord about it? 
I want you to think about that. Why do we oftentimes say we want to go talk to the Lord about something when, in fact, he's already spoken? So Balaam rose up in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Get into your land, for the Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. So the picture wasn't over. The king of Moab, Balak, sent yet more princes, more honorable than the first ones. And they came to the prophet Balaam and said, I will promote you into very great honor, and I will do whatsoever you say unto me. Come now, I pray you, curse me this people. And Balaam answered, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Wow, that should have been the end of it. But it wasn't. Why wasn't that the end of it? Think about that. Let that hover over your mind for a moment. So Balaam again said, i tell you what, guys, stay here tonight that I may know what the Lord will say more to me. So God came to Balaam at night and said, If the men come to call you, rise up and go with them. But yet the word of the Lord I shall say unto you, that you shall do. In other words, if the men come, then go with them. So what did Balaam do? He didn't wait for them to come. He rose up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princess of Moab. Why did he do that? Why did he not wait for the men to come? So God's anger was kindled against uh, Balaam, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him as he was riding his donkey, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn to the end, and the donkey turned aside out of the way, and Balaam smote the donkey to turn the donkey away. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself into the wall, crushed Balaam's foot, and he smote her again. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and he smote the donkey with his staff. And then the Lord opened the mouth of the ass. That's what the King James Version says, not donkey. The Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done to you that you have smitten me these three times? Am I not your donkey upon which you have ridden ever since I was yours? Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword was drawn. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Why did you smite your donkey these three times? I went out to withstand you because your way is perverse before me. How is it that the donkey could see God's will, but Balaam the prophet could not? Would you like to know the answer? Balaam didn't want to see it. He already knew what God's will was. He knew what God's will was before even the first encounter with the king of Moab. So what did he try to do? He tried to pray out from under the known will of God. What would you call that? That's deception, isn't it? 
he used prayer as an obfuscation device to pretend to be spiritual while in reality he was a rebel. He wanted what he wanted. And he was going to get what he wanted even if he had to run after it. So the donkey wasn't the ass, it was he who was, in fact, you can fill in the blank. How many of us have been just like that? Have you? Oh, and the story isn't over yet. That would be dramatic enough, wouldn't it? But the story isn't even over. Now, before we finish that story, this account, I want to make available to you my book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. There's a whole chapter, by the way, talking about Compromise Corner and uh, patterns of compromise and so on and how we get there. You see, this book is unlike any book probably that you have ever read. And it doesn't just talk about compromise. It talks about all kinds of ways that we are seduced and deceived. Just this last week, I received a call from one of our listeners, and uh, he said, Chuck, I have uh, read your book, Seduction of the Saints, And I'm reading through it again because I'm finding that it is perhaps one of the most important books I have ever read. I said, well, why do you think that? He says, because it's not just about facts. It's not just about information. It is massive application of the Word of God in every single sphere of our lives. And so guess what he did? He bought 18 copies of it. Not because he needed 18 copies to read, but because he wanted to give those 18 copies out to every pastor and leader that he knew. That's how important he felt the book was. And I dare say, when you read the book, you'll have a similar reaction. Because it's a book written for our time. It's a book written for this moment in time. And I tell you, the enemy of your soul is out to get it. He will do whatever he has to do. He'll come in like a slithering serpent, or he'll come in as a seductive woman, or he'll come in even as one. He might even come in as a prophet to seduce your soul. How many purported prophets are there out there that are doing exactly that? compromising with the Word of God and leading God's people astray to agree with ideas that are not in the Bible or to disagree with ideas and instructions that are in the Bible. How many pastors, for instance, have you known or heard of or how many church leaders or how many of your so-called Christian friends have told you that it was okay for you to divorce your spouse if you were having problems. Anybody told you that? Have you heard anybody say that about anybody else? 
Have you said that to someone else? Then you are the agent of deception. Did you know that? Oh, you might have had good intentions, but you spoke exactly the opposite of what God says. You decided to elevate your own viewpoint, your own feelings, over those of the Creator. It's simple. That's how the divorce culture started in the late 1960s. Oh, it started from a president called Ronald Reagan, who was then the governor of California, who launched the no-fault divorce law that spread like wildfire. And then it was brought into the church, and pastors all over the country began to accept divorce when, in fact, it was they knew that it was not biblical. But that's not where they ended. No, after that, they began to rationalize, well, if God is going to allow you to divorce, and we're going to allow that, then we need to allow you to remarry, which Jesus called adultery, if your spouse is still living. The Apostle Paul called it adultery, and warned that neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor even practicing homosexuals are going to inherit the kingdom of God. But the pastors didn't do that. Why? Because they became agents of seduction. Oh, their intentions were good in the sense that they didn't want to offend people. They wanted to uh, say, well, God is love, and he's going to do this. He's going. Yeah, well, it was the God of love who actually said, I hate divorce. It was the Jesus of love who actually said, whoever marries the one so divorced commits adultery. You see how easily we seduce ourselves? We become prophets of seduction. And it happens on so many, many different levels. It's not just the general spirit of the world out there. We have become the agents of the world, a worldly spirit. Are you beginning to get the point? Wait till we hear the rest of the story from Mr. Balaam. Not a pretty picture. We'll be back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. I'll pray about it. Well, prayer is great. Men ought always to pray and not to faint, but it should not be used as a spiritual obfuscation device to pretend to be spiritual when, in fact, you're a rebel. 
You don't really want to do what God said. And that's what happened to Mr. Balaam, the prophet Balaam. Now, before we go further, the book, Seduction of the Saints, is on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org, it's an $18 book, yours for $15. It may be the best $15 expenditure you will ever make. You want to be discipled? You want to be encouraged? You want to be exhorted? You want to be protected? Against the spirit of this age and the deceiver who is out to take, to, to, to steal, kill, and destroy? You might want to seriously consider getting a copy of Seduction of the Saints. How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. Again, $15 on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Well, let's get back to Mr. Balaam on his donkey. So the donkey has spoken to Balaam, the prophet. God speaks to him through the mouth of a donkey. Do you know that God has done that? Let me give you an illustration. Time Magazine, April 5th, 1993. That's almost 30 years ago. 29 years ago. The front cover featured a cross. Remember, this is America's liberal news magazine, Time. It's now so liberal that it's not even worth subscribing to at all. But at that time, it was still worthy of reading. Front cover was a cross. In the lower right-hand corner were these words, the generation that forgot God. Now, they weren't talking about the generation that was going to forget God. They're talking about the generation that already had forgotten God as of 1993, which was the year we formed Save America Ministries, God having spoken, I want you to speak to my church at large, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. Mm-hmm. So the feature article was the church search. People were flooding back to church after Gulf War One, and Time Magazine observed that church would never again be the same. And then they gave their reason. Church would never again be the same because Americans were looking for a custom-made God, one made in their own image. Now, you see, God made man in his image, but now we're making God in our image. In other words, we are seducing ourselves into believing that we're following the God of the Bible who created heaven and earth, when in fact we're not. Over time, we have gradually seduced ourselves into believing that we're spiritual while, in fact, we're rebels. We're trying to be equal with God, just like Satan declared he was. Does that not sound an awful lot like we have been self-seduced? How did we get there? It didn't happen instantly. 
It happened at Compromise Corner. One compromise at a time. One yielding to the slippery serpent at a time. Until we were fully enmeshed in his deception. While claiming to be followers of the Lord. Yet rejecting what he says, in whole or in part. Oh, we still claim salvation, but we just don't want to obey his voice on any of the other issues that would reveal whether or not we really were saved. And Balaam had this problem. So Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. Now that sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't it? I have sinned. Now, therefore, if it displease you, I will get me back again. In other words, I'm not going to keep going with these guys that are representing the king of of Moab. I'm going to go back, and God said, okay, I don't believe you, but I'm going to let you keep going. You go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that's what you're going to speak. So God's testing Balaam again. Are you for real? So Balaam went with the king of Moab, Balak. And Balaam said to Balak, Build me here seven altars and prepare me seven oxen and seven rams. Oh, my. And I will go peradventure that the Lord will come to meet me, and what he shows me I will tell you, And he went to a high place. Oh, my goodness. So now, Balaam not only is not willing to listen to what God already told him three times, but now he's going to go into a major spiritual involvement and a major pretense, and he's going to build seven altars and put up all of these different uh, uh, animals, slaughter them, He's going to put on a real spiritual show for the king of Moab, Balak. But the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, "Mm, here's what you will speak. I will, how shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord has not defiled? And then came one of the most important prophecies of the Bible concerning Israel. The people, that is Israel, shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Oh my. The king of Moab now is feeling very defeated. Balaam has repeated God's viewpoint to him over and over again four times. So Balaam is not finished, though. He's going to persist. Come, I pray you, with me to another mountain. So he brought him to another place, to the top of Pisgah, built seven altars there, and said to Balak, Stand here by the burnt offerings while I meet with the Lord yonder. And so he took up this parable. God spoke to him and says, God is not a man that he should lie. Has he said and he shall not do it? Has he spoken? Shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. 
And Balak and the king of Moab said to Balaam, well, then don't curse them at all. Don't, don't bless them either. And Balaam said, didn't I tell you all that the Lord speaks I must do? And Balak said to Balaam, come, I'm going to, I'm going to take you to another place. Maybe it will please God that you may curse them for me. And Balaam said to Balak, build me here seven altars. Unbelievable. Finally, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And he took up this parable because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The man whose eyes are open, has said. And he began to declare God's blessing over Israel. Now, we don't have time to go into the final decisive events here. But the point is this. This prophet, Balaam, five times tried to pray himself out from under the known will of God. Why did he do that? Because he wanted what he wanted. He was seduced by the spirit of his flesh, and that which is the flesh yields corruption. Seduction always attacks your flesh. Whether it has to do with money, $10 million, $5 million, $2 million, That's how we started out today. Whether it has to do with sidling up to some frisky filly, whether it has to do with uh, a rendezvous with someone in your office over the water cooler, seduction is still seduction. That's why the Bible says flee temptation. It doesn't say pedal around with it, pussyfoot around with it. It doesn't say kick it around a little bit. How about checking this out? Well, if it feels good, do it. Well, it couldn't be all that bad. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? Well, and all the rationalizations that we can come up with. Oh, my goodness. It's unbelievable. 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 How many times have I heard a woman say, but, concerning the affair that she went into outside the knowledge of her husband, or a husband went into an affair outside the knowledge of his wife, how many times of reports have I seen of pastors from coast to coast, pastors of major churches, who have even preached on these subjects, that were seduced. They were willing to be seduced. You see, seduction attacks our will. That's why the that's why the uh, psalmist David in Psalm one nineteen over and over again says, "I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, or I will not." He says, I will meditate in your word. I will delight myself in your word. 
Do you know one of the reasons why we are so easily seduced is because we are not meditating in the Word every day, and we're not delighting in the Word and not delighting in the Lord. We're delighting in the spirit of the world. We're delighting in that which our flesh wants. Now, there's nothing wrong with good things that are the blessing of the Lord. But when we're seeking the good things as opposed to the good Lord, we got a problem. And that's why Jesus said, look, here's the simple answer. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't just seek it parenthetically. Don't just say, well, I went to that Billy Graham rally 40 years ago and confessed Christ. That's not enough, Vince. That is not what God is looking for. He wants you to seek him with a whole heart. He wants you to meditate on his word day and night. He wants you to delight in him. He's looking for a real, real relationship with you that's honorable, not adulterous, not uh, flirtatious in that sense, not uh, a a fornication. Clean, pure, honorable, and holy. That's what God wants. Now, I don't know your exact circumstance, but I do know humankind. After all these years, 20 years as a trial lawyer with 80% of my clientele for the broader body of Christ, 39 years as a pastor, I know some of these things. I know humankind. I have great compassion on people. That's why I can speak this way, because I know. But God knows even the more so. He's pleading with his people. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints, Staying Pure in a World of Deception, $15 on the website, saveus.org. Press on, my friends. Press on. Flee temptation. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.